0: Some of you may wonder why we come together with such a small group on a Sunday evening, and this is a fairly regular practice uh, for us. And the reason why I do it is because I need it. So, I think I just did the calculation. Uh, I'm involved in 13 of these in a given week. So this is only one out of 13. Um, I need to be in the Word of God with others on a regular basis. Um, it seems to be for my spiritual benefit. Uh, without it, I'm in trouble. So I don't know how people get along with a short 20-minute vignette once a week, which they may or may not attend. Um, I just don't see that to be any way to, to grow. And so for me to grow, I need to be in 10, 12, 13 different small convocations on any given week. And so that's what I do. Uh, So, you know, if you want to understand why we do what we do, we do it for our benefit. We do it also because because God tells us to come together. Where two or three are gathered, Jesus said, He will be in their midst. And I enjoy actually being together with others where Jesus is in the midst. I'm drawn into that. Um, So... I, I think you're here for that reason, too. So I just, you know, never be bothered by the fact that there are only six or eight, or in some instances, only four or five uh, gather together in some of our small convocations throughout the week. But I would draw your attention to Hebrews chapter 10, because I do think this ties in. We, we, we actually referred to this uh, during the COVID months, at which time... We may have been violation of the law. I don't know. We had at least the approval of the county sheriff to come together. But uh, Hebrews 10, verse 25, said that, uh, or back to 24, let us consider one another in order to stir up to love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another in so much the more as you see the day approaching. Uh, Which, as I see it, uh, is is uh, the day of increased levels of temptation or uh, perhaps the judgment of God coming upon a nation uh, or it may be the final judgment itself. I am not sure what the day is, but it is really crucial because the next verse says, if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin but a certain fearful expectation of judgment. Uh, so there's a warning there, but... but We need this. We need to be together. We need to exhort one another to love and good works. And we need sort of that regular feeding of the Word of God uh, so that we are spiritually animated, so that we're alive, so we're sensitive, increasingly sensitive to uh, what God has to give us in His Word. Uh, So I guess that's the reason why I do this. I just wanted to share that with you just for a moment. But this evening we're going to Exodus chapter 4 and verse 18. Exodus 4 and verse 18 And tonight I'd like to read from verse 18 down through verse 26. Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 to 26. Let's stand together and uh, hear God's word. So Moses went and returned to Jethro's father-in-law and said to him, Please, let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now the Lord said to Moses, Midian, Go return to Egypt, for all the men who sought your life are dead. Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand, and the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill you, your son, your firstborn. And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. And Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go, and then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray you to open up this passage to us. You are God. You are our God. And we, help, we, we pray that you would help us to understand a little more of who you are, that we might further honor you and worship you, and, of course, love you and embrace your covenant. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Please be seated. Here we come upon one of the strangest passages in the Bible. Scratch our heads a little bit and say, what, what in the world is going on here? But I think it's important for us to know that this is insight concerning the nature of the God with whom we have to do. The problem with natural man man is that uh, we all start out with deception. Our minds are somewhat blurred and certainly blinded concerning knowing ourselves and, of course, knowing God as well. We have a wrong conception of God. So we need to get a right understanding of the God with whom we have to do. This is a priority for us more than anything else. We might think wrongly about politics, might think wrongly about Donald Trump or other things, but we really need to think rightly about God more than anything else. We need a right conception of God, and many American Christians have constructed a wrong God in their own imagination. Now, this is not unusual. People have constructed gods in their own imaginations all the time. In fact, I've been reading the history of the world, and Spending a fair amount of time studying the religions of the Incas, the Aztecs, uh, the Indians out in India and elsewhere, and uh, they just come up with these gods. I was asking myself, where do they get Shiva and Vishnu? These are the two primary gods of the Indians out in India. So I asked the question, where do these gods come from? Well, it turns out that people come up with these gods. They invent them, like inventing characters in a role-playing game. So that's what happens. All these religions that you see, all these gods around the world, somebody sat down and they thought about it for a while, and they said, wouldn't it be fun to have a god like this? And typically they were kings or kings uh, uh, that worked with some important priests in the land, so they'd sit together and they'd work it out, and sometimes they'd receive, I'm sure, some demonic insight, Uh, but uh, they would come up with these gods uh, for themselves, and then people would worship these gods for the next 1,000 years. Um, but it's only Christianity that presents a God who reveals Himself to us in His Word. He conveys this Word directly from Himself to us. And He doesn't shift His description of Himself from one revelation to the next. The idea that the Old Testament God is not the same as the New Testament God is uh, a, a wrong perception of God's revelation. It's, uh, that would be itself a wrong uh, religion. So don't, don't don't take on a religion that would say that The God of the New Testament is any different from the God of the Old Testament. So we have actually encountered God through these uh, stories thus far in the book of Exodus. So let's just spend a little bit of time reviewing what we have learned about God. Moses has encountered God at the burning bush. It's hard to know how much written communication or revelation the people of God had uh, from Abraham and others who had received some revelation of God early on, but for a period of hundreds of years, the children of Israel had not had a direct encounter with the living God until Moses encountered God at the burning bush. So now, here in Exodus chapter 3, we learn several things. First of all, we learn that God is holy. Remember, as Moses approached the bush, do you remember what, what happened? The Lord saw that Moses had turned aside, and God called to Moses from the midst of the bush, said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. So the first thing we've learned about God is that he is holy. He's absolutely holy. He is holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And that means that he is uncontaminated in his holiness. God is absolutely pure in his holiness. The angels are actually impure in His sight. It's hard to understand exactly what that means in that the angels, the angels that surround His throne, are not sinful. Uh, Nevertheless, there is something of an impurity about the angels when it comes to the purity of God. The consistency of God, the purity of God's essence is such that there is absolutely no imperfection about, about Him at any definition of imperfection. So the first thing we've learned about God is that he is holy, and so when we are in the presence of God, we feel that we are somewhat contaminated or very contaminated, that we are very dirty, that we are foul creatures in the presence of God, and that's why Isaiah put his hand upon his mouth, and, uh, and, and that's, that's why anybody who encounters God falls down upon their faces. They cover their, their faces, or they might even cover their feet, as in the case of the angels. All right, so God is absolutely holy. Then we move on to verse 14 in Exodus chapter 3, what do we find here? Uh, Moses asked God, what shall I say uh, has the, the God who I've come into contact with, who shall I call you? What is your name? And God said to Moses in verse 14 of Exodus chapter 3, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am, has sent me to you, this is my name forever. And this is my memorial to all generations. In other words, God's name is always I Am. So what does it mean that He is the great I Am? So this is the second clue. This is the second thing we've, we've learned concerning the true and living God as He reveals Himself to us. Well, this means that God is eternally present. God is the ultimate existence. His existence is not precarious or temporary at all. His existence is never compromised. He is the ultimate existence. He's always and ever existent. He is very much present. He's always the great I am. He's not the great I was, such as Napoleon or George Washington. George Washington had some great moments. Napoleon had some great moments. But they are now the great I was. But uh, but God is not the great I was. God is the great I am. He's not even the great I will be. He is as much the great I am today as he was 3,400 years ago when he met Moses at the burning bush. So the second thing we learned about God is that he is the ultimate existence, the source of all existence, and eternally present. Okay, thirdly, we also learned from chapter 4 and verse 11. I think this was the week before last. We learned that God is sovereign over every person's life on earth. And you look at verse 11 of chapter 4, and here we read, The Lord said to him, to Moses, Because Moses was saying, I can't approach Pharaoh. I'm not much of a speaker. I'm not really the guy to do this, not qualified. So Moses was concerned about himself. is making excuses. And so the Lord turns to Moses. And this is what he says in chapter 4 and verse 11. Now listen to what he says. Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute and the deaf, the seeing or the blind? Have not I the Lord? So here we find that God is absolutely sovereign The lot of every person on earth is determined by God the fact that I have congenital lymphedema which occurred at birth probably a defect that occurred at birth and it's been a problem for 59 years of my life that was determined by God at the very beginning he was the source of this it was his will his purpose in my life that I have uh, this particular malady and uh, so we see that God is absolutely sovereign God provides us gifts, and God sometimes gives us uh, certain things that might handicap us because He has a purpose for that in our lives. So that's the third thing we learned just two weeks ago is that God is sovereign over every person's life on earth. So whatever your lot is, God has brought that to you. Fourthly, we have learned, and we are learning tonight, that uh, God is not dispassionate. Now what does that mean? Well, that means that God is not disinterested or without any emotional passions. That is, God is not a robot. God is very much emotionally involved. Now, I use the word emotion in an anthropomorphic way. That is, I don't intend to say that God's emotions are exactly like ours, but as much as we can understand emotions, uh, God reflects these emotions. Uh, God is angry at points with Moses. You catch that in verse 14 of chapter 4. Here we read that God is angry with Moses, so the anger of the Lord is kindled against Moses. We find this all the way through the relationship of God and the people of Israel as they cross the desert uh, they are almost constantly recalcitrant, they're rebellious, they, they're, they're irritating to God, and He is responding to them at points in anger, which means that God is not just dis, a dispassionate judge, but God's very much involved. God is angry at points uh, with Moses. And Now we come tonight to a fifth characteristic concerning the God with whom we have to do. So let's go to number five. What we've done is just reviewed a little bit about what we've learned about God uh, in this very important uh, connection or encounter that Moses has with God uh, after 400 years of silence between Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the coming of, of Moses to the burning bush. So here's the fifth characteristic of God we come upon tonight, and that is that God is violent. God is violent. Now, some, again, might not be very happy with this point, but this is certainly something about the nature of God that we need to come to grips with, that God is violent. Now, there is a great deal of violence in the earth, so violence itself shouldn't shock us. God's judgments are all around us, and that is characterized by violence very often. Wherever there is mass death, wherever there is death, whether it be the slaughter of hundreds of millions of people in the worldwide flood or anything else, God's hand of judgment is upon uh, the world. Sometimes the world pretends that violence is wrong, yet the world participates in violence all the time. Violence in the womb, violence in the heart, violence in homes, violence in words, violence by liberals on marches in the streets across this country, uh, recently contributing to $8 billion of damage in the 2020 protests. So it's not unusual to see these wonderful, peaceful liberals participating in violence so violence is something that uh, I think the world is very familiar with Uh, the world's violence though is sinful and rebellious and revolutionary against God Uh, but the point is that God is violent too his violence is ultimately righteous which means that um, he doesn't break his own laws when people run out and murder somebody else with a malicious intent what is this this is a violation of God's law. This is un- unjust. This is wrong. and This will receive the just punishment of God uh, for it. So, so God's justice, God's violence, is ultimately just and ultimately righteous. And we find in this description again in Deuteronomy thirty-two thirty-nine. once I want you to listen to this. Now, this is God speaking. See that I, even I am He, and there is no God besides me, He says. This is Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. There is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. For I raise my hand to heaven and say, As I live forever, if I wet my glittering sword, my hand takes hold on judgment. I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. So these are the very words of God in which he states, he defines himself as one who is very violent and and exercises extremely violent judgment against sin and sinners. So we need to say it uh, tonight. We need to say it clearly. The Word of God brings it out to us very clearly. God kills people. His killings are extremely premeditated. They're intentional. They're ultimately just, and nothing can stay His hand. He will kill whomever He will according to the standards of His righteousness, and He is to be feared. Now, again, He brought about by His purposes the death of His only begotten Son, in order that He would satisfy divine justice in our place. So we have to see the violence of the cross of Jesus Christ has taken place as a way in which we ourselves would avert this judgment, that Jesus took the judgment upon Himself. Jesus bore the curse of our sins upon Himself. Jesus was the victim of that violence that was due us, was due our sins on the cross. So let's remember that as well tonight, but God is violent, and God is to be feared. Okay, now let's get back to the story tonight from Exodus chapter 4. First, we find Moses asked permission of his father-in-law that he might return to Egypt and see his people there. At this point, he's been there for 40 years. It's a very long time. It's hard to know how old his sons are because we don't know how old Moses was when he was married. He was 40 years old when he arrived with Jethro's household and uh, in Midian, and uh, eighty years old when he left his father-in-law's household in Midian to return to Egypt, Moses was honorable to his father-in-law. He asked permission. Very important that we're honorable to our fathers and fathers-in-laws, as Moses was. But now the Lord God sends Moses back to Egypt, and he does. As he does this, he explains again how the meeting with Pharaoh will play out. So he walks through this. The first thing that's going to happen, he says, is Moses needs to work these miracles in Pharaoh's presence, which most definitely will catch the king's attention. So I think part of the reason for this, that Moses is not some uh, wayward person just wandering into the courts of Pharaoh, but Moses is there as a servant of God, representing God to speak uh, to the, the issues that Pharaoh needs to hear. So the ancient world actually did believe in the supernatural unlike the proud world of the naturalists today. So it wouldn't be an entire surprise for Pharaoh to see uh, Moses turning his rod into a snake and so forth. It's not not unusual. They understood that there was something called the supernatural. Uh, We live in a world in which we've been programmed to think that there is no supernatural. We've been brainwashed by our science classes, brainwashed in our media. There's no such thing as the supernatural. Uh, But there really is such a thing as the supernatural. So... But, 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 but it's not going to do anything more than to catch Pharaoh's attention. And I think that's the point that's made here, is that Pharaoh will pay attention, but Pharaoh's heart will be hardened over this. Now, if I went up to the cemetery up on the hill over Elizabeth here and raised 20 people from the dead, uh, would we have a revival here? Would we have this place packed out next Sunday? Of course not. Uh, absolutely not. There's no way that would happen. Uh, people could care less. If I raised the dead... 20 people came out of the ground, began walking around. That would make no impact whatsoever on anybody witnessing it in this county. Their hearts are just too hard. Um, Moses would perform extremely impressive supernatural miracles. And every time, Pharaoh would harden his heart. Pharaoh's heart would turn harder and harder and harder until he had re- achieved a uh, Moh's hardness of 10.000, which is as hard as a diamond. His heart would be as hard as any heart has ever been. Uh, that would be his response to these miracles. Uh, this would demonstrate the tremendous demonic and sinful lock hold upon the hearts of men. Uh, men's hearts are so hardened against God uh, that uh, even if somebody was to be raised to the, from the dead, it would do them no good whatsoever. Um, but the God who can do all of this to Egypt also uh, will kill the firstborn of Pharaoh. And, and so Moses did give the Pharaoh the heads up that, that, uh, that God is threatening the slaughter of the firstborn of Pharaoh himself. So from the outset of the discussion, God is putting a gun to the head of Pharaoh's son. And the reason for that, he explains here in this text, that God loves Israel. God loves his son with whom he has covenanted And this is his firstborn. And if Pharaoh does not let Israel go from slavery, God says, I will pull the trigger. I will kill your firstborn son. And this really did happen. So that's the way the first meeting is going to go between Moses and Pharaoh. But now let's look at verses 24 through 26. I want to wrap up here tonight. Uh, Finally, something very strange occurs as they were camped out on the way back to Egypt. And I think we need to take careful look at the text one more time. So let's read it. Verse 24, And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met Moses and sought to kill him. And then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. And so he let him go. And then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision." All right, two things I want to point out tonight before we're done. The first of which is this, Zipporah is not happy with Moses. And then secondly, God is not happy with Moses. So neither of them are happy with Moses. But first, Zipporah. Why is Zipporah unhappy with her husband? Well, she intervenes for her husband to save her husband's life. And I think this is appropriate. In this sense, Zipporah is following the pattern of Abigail, who is concerned about her husband Nabal and saved her husband's life. I think it is important for the Zipporahs and the Abigails of the world uh, to intervene for the, for, the, for the sake of their stupid husbands, who are not doing what God would have them to do. Now, ultimately, Zipporah saved Moses' life because God was about to kill Moses, More fundamentally, Zipporah was not happy with the circumcision. And circumcision was something that was to happen to all of the male children born to Israel. It was a covenant sign that was established with Abraham some 400 years earlier. It was the sign of the covenant that God made with his people. Circumcision, though, is what? Circumcision is not baptism. Baptism, we use water circumcision, we cut open a child's flesh. It is a bloody affair. And remember, there is no anesthesia to use for the process. So even as we think about it, we as males especially kind of wince for a moment. At least I do as I, as I read this text. I, I wouldn't want to be this young man who was subjected to the cutting of the flesh, it was blood involved. So it's a bloody affair. So why is this? Well, I believe that in some respects... This was the closest religious rite to human sacrifice allowed by God in the Old Testament. It was a bloody sacrifice that was performed on a person, but obviously not including his his life. It would not take the life of the victim. And so, in this sense, this is a major discontinuity between baptism and circumcision in the uh, the New Testament. I believe that the reason Zipporah was not pleased with this sacrifice of circumcision is because she was not converted or she had not been taught well by Moses. Circumcising sons is a hard thing to do. There's no question about it. Circumcision is a small token symbol for what would happen to the Son of God. So, why the males in the Old Testament? I think, I believe, a good explanation to this is that. When the the male was subjected to a cutting of the flesh like this, it would be somewhat of a token of, of what would happen to the Son of God at the cross where He would be pierced all the way through by the nails and by the sword in His side. Circumcision is a token, symbol for what would happen later to the Son of God. God takes sin seriously and to cut sin out of our life would eventually require the cutting up of the Son of God Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the point. Now, of course, the pagans don't consider sin to be that serious. Here we're at the cross. We perceive the nature of sin rightly. Isn't that what we sang in the song earlier? So indeed, it is a problem. Sin requires a cutting of the flesh. Sin requires a, a, a sacrifice. Sin requires a cutting out, uh, which is exactly what happened to our Savior. All right, so Zipporah was not happy with Moses, but God was not happy with Moses either. God was displeased with him. And and God really does kill people for mishandling His ordinances. Now, at this point, you might say, well, that's the Old Testament, but what about the New Testament? Well, as it turns out, there is no difference between the New Testament God and and the Old Testament God, this dichotomy has got to be rejected by all of us. Uh, this passage is not strange at all. It shouldn't be strange at all to us. Uh, this passage is only strange to those who have a wrong conception of God. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 3. We re- read this earlier. All of these Old Testament folks ate of the same spiritual food and they drank the same spiritual drink. This is given to us in the context of the Lord's Supper. The Apostle Paul is about ready to talk about the Lord's Supper in chapter 11 and, and a little further on in chapter 10. But he points out the Old Testament saints also were given some symbolic or ceremonial elements which include spiritual food and spiritual drink. They drank the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And then there were other instances of that throughout the first several verses in First Corinthians 10. Then move on to First Corinthians 11 and verse 27. We have the same warning for us in the New Testament church. Verse 27, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks his cup as we do each and every Sunday here. Those who eat of the bread and drink of the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he who drinks and eats in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And then here it comes. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep, for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. So here is again an instance, not just that people were sick, but that people were sleeping, and that is a a word used for death, uh, temporal death. Uh, And uh, so evidently there were people in the Corinthian church who had died because they had taken of the sacrament in an unworthy manner. Now there have been some... Who have complained of our church that we take church discipline and the sacraments too seriously? Now, as we read these texts, what do you think? You consider these things. You know, some some think we're a little too strict or we're too concerned about sexual sin in the congregation or something of that sort. Well, what do you think? Just reading this, what are your thoughts? we make a pretty big deal out of the Lord's Supper why can't we be like other churches that are very loosey-goosey about the elements about taking the Lord's Supper I think every church needs church membership and they need to take baptism in the Lord's Supper very seriously why because people die when they take it wrongly that's why As as you read these things you think well wow this is the real deal. This is like an important deal. The church is an important deal. Maybe we should take the church more seriously, right, as we we consider these things. Maybe we should take God more seriously. And I think that's the right response to this. God almost killed Moses. What's extraordinary about that is Moses was his man. Moses was a leader. Moses was a man intended to bring these people out of Egypt and to fulfill the covenant promises. So one thing I think we do need to say is that God is committed to the sign, the sign of circumcision. But why is that? Why was God so committed to the sign of circumcision? Well, because He was committed to the covenant. God had signed the covenant with Abraham, and He wanted Moses to sign the covenant as well. He wanted Moses to respect His covenant, and He expects us to respect His covenant as well especially those who profess to be a part of it. God's covenant is extremely important uh, to God, and He wants it to be important to ourselves. He wants us to respect His covenant with us. He seals the covenant with the blood of His only begotten Son. Uh, The covenant is a beautiful thing. What is it? It's a promise of forgiveness. It's God's deal with us to bring about redemption for us through His Son, Jesus. It's the promise of a Savior. It's our reception into the family of God. And he has these ordinances whereby he officiates and inducts us into his family and into the covenant. So to realize that God is serious about the covenant is to take the covenant seriously ourselves. Another New Testament passage affirms this down in verse 29 of Hebrews 10. It says, how how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who had trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, as we close, let's consider the application tonight. What about those who do not baptize their children? You see, the problem was that Moses would not circumcise his son. So let me consider for a moment what to say about those who do not baptize their children. A few considerations, some things to chew on. First is this. We need to be careful and and honest when it comes to discussions on the sacraments that have been so controversial in the Christian church for 1,800 years. Colossians 2 indicates some level of continuity between circumcision and baptism. Circumcision points to the circumcision of the heart. That is the cleaning up of the heart. Circumcision is a cutting away of the ugly flesh. Baptism is a washing away of the ugly flesh. So that's the difference. They both deal with ugly flesh. The one cuts it away, the other washes it. They both point to the circumcision of the heart in Colossians chapter 2. So there we find a significant point in of connection. As I said, there are also disconnections or discontinuities as well. Baptism is a covenant sign. It is God's indication or induction into the covenant and the visible church. Uh, Yet there are the four discontinuities between circumcision and baptism, one of which has been the removal of the requirement of the eighth day. In the Old Testament, the children were required to be circumcised on the eighth day. The early church as early as 200 A.D. allowed uh, that basically there be some flexibility on the date of baptism, and many children were not baptized until they were two, three, four, five years of age, and we see that on gravestones of Christian children identified all the way back to the second century. Secondly, second thing to consider is the modern age has largely disintegrated their households and turn their children over to the state. Effectively, families have adopted their children out to the state. Thus, a household baptism has far less meaning today than it did in years past, before the slave state was put in place. Now we live in the age of family disintegration. So, again, that's just the way things are. Now, until we can bring children back into families and reconstruct biblical households, it's hard to advocate household baptisms. Thirdly, I believe this passage commends itself to the leader of God's people, such as the moderator of a presbytery or the elders of a church. They most certainly should baptize their children. And I think every pastor should carefully consider this verse in the fear of God. And then fourthly, the the timing here was critical. God was revisiting His people. Yahweh God was validating His covenant And he fully expected the man who was to represent the people in the covenant to abide by the standards of the covenant. And that's what Moses was not doing. So, why was Moses slothful at this? I want to end with this application and then we'll be done. My explanation is that Moses had raised his household in the pagan world. He had not separated his household enough from the pagan world. One of the reasons why we baptize our households is to bring them out of the world and place them into the context of a local church. Again, we're not saying that baptism is a means or a, a, a regeneration, that automatically, ex opere operato, a child is regenerated or saved through the baptism. But what the baptism does do is bring them out of the world and place them in the context as members of the local church. Moses most likely had compromised what he knew to be true in order to keep the peace. Moses was a man of meekness. He tended not to be uh, real assertive and forward uh, with his own opinions and such. And one of the drawbacks of meek people can be that they don't stand up at points at which they should stand up against those who would argue against them. So my guess is that Moses was the kind of guy who was trying to keep the peace in his household. So, But he had not acted in faith and obedience. He was a man of a covenant. He was circumcised himself, but he refused to circumcise his sons. So many men are like this. They refuse to act in faith and obedience to God. They keep procrastinating on the thing they're supposed to do. Maybe it's just family worship on a day-to-day basis. Or maybe it's restoring a relationship, asking forgiveness of your wife baptizing your children, joining a church, cleaning out the worldly stuff from your home. I don't know what it is, but there are certain things that God wants us doing in our homes. But we as men can be lazy, and we procrastinate, we put it off, and so forth. God's very concerned about these sorts of things. He's calling our households out of the world. He's calling us to be holy. He's calling us to be part of His program, and His program includes our households. So by the time you get to Joshua, it's interesting. He would tell the men of Israel... Sort of assuming that nobody is going to serve the Lord. He turns to the entire group of uh, Israelites and says, Choose you this day whom you will serve. If you want to serve the gods in Egypt, so be it. If you want to serve the gods over across the river in Babylon, so be it. Um, But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That there will be one household left in Israel that would stand to serve the Lord. And that is almost where things are today in America. There aren't that many men who will stand up and say this. But I charge you men to do it, to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The Bible calls our children holy, that is, separate, First Corinthians 7, 14. Our children to be separated. They're to be considered as holy ones, separated from the world. That's one reason why we baptize them. And so we ought to be sure that our households are set apart from the world and we're discipling our children in the faith of Jesus and the commandments of God. So let's shed ourselves of the American individualism, the anti-covenantal view that has been damaging to the faith. Let's uh, be the federal heads of our homes as, as men. Let's love God even more than we love our wives and our relatives. Let's obey God and do what God wants us to do as we lead our households, no matter the cost. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray you would open up these things to us. There's something that we, especially as men, have lacked. If there's something we're procrastinating on, If we are giving way, uh, trying to retain some peace, and yet uh, we are disrupting peace with God, Father, we are not loving you with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and instead loving other things, loving the world, loving our own uh, peaceful relationships with other fellow men or relatives, Father, we pray that you would make these things abundantly clear to us, convict us all by your Holy Spirit, where is it that we have fallen short, we pray that uh, You would send the message home to each and every one of us, especially as men, that we would lead our households well and that we would be separated from the world and raising our children in the covenant, in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord Jesus Christ. And We pray this in His name.